Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of Daffy's Roundtable. If you keep dark frogs, then my guest today needs no introduction. He has an incredible collection of frogs in some of the most beautiful tanks I've ever seen. We're joined today by Troy Goldberg, and we're going to discuss all things Ufaga from their natural history to their husbandry and captivity. We also discuss some of Troy's vivarium building methods, as well as touch on his 350-gallon paludarium. Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsor, Exoterra, who makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. As you guys may already know or can see just by looking behind me, I'm a big fan of all Exoterra's products, so I'm super excited to be working with them moving forward. Okay, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Troy Goldberg of Troy's Tropical Garage. Hello. How are you? Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Thank Good, you so much you? for coming on. I'm doing great. I'm very excited for this. Another Dart Frog episode. Who, who, who can't be excited, right? um awesome i'm just gonna start things off Uh, i know most people probably already know what you have in your collection but if you can give us like a quick rundown of the species you're currently keeping um sure that would be yeah that would be awesome okay um i'll start with uh i guess some of the more common frogs that i own um with dendrobates tinctorius we'll start with those um i have the tinctorius azurius i have tinctorius citronella uh brazilian yellowheads Oyapok, Katari River, Green Cipollowini, Yellowbacks, and Vanessa. I think that's it. I do. I am growing up some giant orange as well. Um, And then I do have the Dendrobates leucomelis, the fine spot variant. And then I do keep the Phyllobates terribilis mint. Um, Those are kind of more of the, I guess, more common frogs in my collection then i do have a couple species of ranitomea i keep the ranitomea uh, reticulata and i have the solid form of those and then i have ranitomea highland sorensis those are the only two ranitomeas i keep and uh, then i do keep quite a few ufaga species starting with pamilio i have uh, two different forms of bastimentos I have the Escudo and Rio Calubre, Salarte, and I think that's it for Pamilio. Um, and then I keep the large obligates as well, which the Ufaga histrionica, Lamani, and Sylvatica. And I have one species of Lamani. It is the, or one locale, I should say, um, the yellow form. I do keep one Sylvatica which is the San Lorenzo. And then Histrionica, I have Blue Histo. I have Anchicaia, the Tato, and I have small form redhead, large form redhead, and Bullseye. And I also have Bahia Solano. And I think that's it. Um, And that's, that's the dart frog collection, so to speak. And I also have the... 300-gallon paludarium that houses Adelopus balios and also some Adelopetrachium uh, valeri, the glass frogs. So I have a group of balios and a group of glass frogs. I think that's it. Um, that is awesome. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, that should yeah, be it. Yeah, it must be a tough <laughs> tough question to answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's it's okay. Awesome. I'm glad you have so many Ufago because I have 100 Ufago questions to ask you. Um, awesome. But before we get into that, the Highland Sorensis, the Ranitomea Highland Sorensis, is that the same um, locale as the Rio 
Pachieta, I think it's pronounced. That is not a question for me. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, honestly, I'm not a uh, I'm not well versed in Ranatomea. Um, I've only kept a few species in twenty. This is my twenty third year of keeping dart frogs, and wow. uh, I've only kept maybe four, four or five species of them. And so many of their same thing with Pamilio too. Like, you know, it's called one thing for a few years, and then it gets re. You know, the taxonomy gets switched, and something it starts getting called or something like that. Just recently happened last week with some of the Fantasticus. Um, I saw they're now being you know called. Uh, Summerside or Summercy, whatever you want to call them. So right. stuff's always getting like, you know, changed. So I'm not exactly sure on that. I know there are multiple different locales of the uh, the Sorensis, the Highland Sorensis, but yeah, they, like some are Tango Maria and um, there's, an, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a few. So I'm not exactly sure if it's the exact same, um, but yeah, it's, I'm sure it's similar. That was just them calling. I, I know the the Sorensis call. Uh, it's it, I I asked that question because uh, I've heard that there's a difference between breeding speeds because I've seen the uh, Rio Pachieta or whatever however it's pronounced and yeah. they mm -hmm. um, they breed like rabbits and then I've also heard people saying that they have uh, another form of uh, Sorensis that breed really slow. I only keep the Ranitomy Vanzoline, so I don't know. I'm just I was just curious if it was the same um, same species. If it is, good yeah. luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean mine mine produce pretty well i don't uh i don't pull too many of their eggs you know um just because you know i'm kind of i got a lot on my hands with the tinctorius the, the phyllobates and the ufaga so um if i find a baby in their tank i, I kind of let them raise their own like pamilio do so i'm not like pulling many and raising them myself i did a, i think i raised up maybe 10 last year um and uh the rest, I just let their, them do their own thing in the tank. So, awesome. And yeah, as far as like some species breeding faster than others or um, being more uh, more viable than others, I guess proactive. You know, the uh, I think sometimes certain locales it may be slightly skewed one way toward the other, um, but right. I, I think a lot of it comes down to just particular animals. You know, there may be one locale that's you know, everyone says has a hard time, but then somebody gets a hold of a, a really, um, you know, really active female or, and, and they produce like, you know, like rabbits. Um, yeah. So I think some of that just has to do with, it can be genetics and stuff like that too. So um, yeah, I usually don't look at something like, yeah, those are just, the, that species is so hard to breed. I kind of think it's every animal's, every, every individual animal is different. Right. And, and on the topic of locales, we were just talking before the episode, so I'm going to ask you this again. Um, yeah. You were saying something about uh, how sometimes the, the locales aren't the actual locales of where the frogs come from. Uh, yeah. Want to maybe touch on that sure. a little bit. Like there's, there's some that are, you know, Bastamenos, for example. If you go to Bastamenos Island, um, you're going to find Bastamenos there. If you go to uh, Isla Colon or Colon, however you want to say it, um, you're going to find the Mimitimbi, you're going to find the Drago colons there. Um, Solarte, you're going to find Solarte there. But there's some locales um, that don't necessarily have the island name attached to them. And and this is just, I'm speaking in familiar terms, um, you know, something that we may call, I don't know, a Rambala. Um, I'm not sure. I'm just using an example. I'm not sure if this is actually one, but um, it may not be the actual locale or where, where that frog's from. 
um, one to protect, you know, the actual population there. So poachers aren't coming and smuggling those frogs constantly. Um, also a lot of the people that collect those frogs and what I'm going to say here is a lot of it's, uh, directed more towards tinctorious. Um, there's not a whole lot of information on tinctorious locales and, one of the reasons is the collectors that are collecting these frogs from the, the wild and making money off them, they don't want to give the exact location of where these frogs are from. Again, from poachers, um, that's their livelihood. Other people can come take the frogs and take basically money from them. Um, so it's, it's, there's quite a few things there, but um, they may be in the general area. You know, there's, I'm sure there's frogs from, French Guyana that may not actually be from French Guyana. Maybe they're from Guyana and same thing. There's probably frogs from Brazil that actually um, came in and got exported through Guyana or right. um, Suriname. You know, they're right on the border there. So, you know, it's, um, and obviously we know things from Brazil are illegal technically because of the Lacey yes. Act. So, um, you know, but you just never know the way things were done. I, I think we've got a good grip on stuff now, but I think back in the 90s, 80s, early 2000s, um, stuff from Brazil could have been being exported out of Guyana's or uh, Suriname, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's just just because, I guess, getting back to your original question, just because it does have a certain locale attached to it doesn't always mean that it's that's exactly you go to that area in the jungle doesn't mean that's where you're going to find the frogs. Um, so, yeah, it's just an interesting little tidbit there. Yeah, no, I'm sorry for making you repeat that. I just found it so interesting. That's, uh, yeah. I, I never would, I mean, like, obviously, you know, when you get a, a frog, like I got the, I have the Oyapak as well. And the first thing I did was, okay, let me look up the Oyapak River and the Oyapak area. Yep. And, like trying to figure out now it's to think is I could have been looking up a completely different area. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to, uh, that you say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm... Yeah. No, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was just going to say, um, yeah, there's also different like spellings. Like I think there's there's a few different spellings of Oyapok and um I noticed that as well. There's yeah, it's like so which one which area is that from? Did they choose that locale because that could confuse people? Um because right. there's multiple different spellings. It's like I'm not going to go all over the place looking for these things. Um you know, so so it's just things you wonder about. Um you know, and really the only way to find out is to talk to people that are down there or live down there and actually see where these populations are in the wild. Um, you know, if they can confirm it or not, but again, communication with them, with the people that are down there isn't always the easiest. And they're also oftentimes not the most willing to just, you know, openly give information to you. So that's presents, presents a challenge there in itself. That's yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, and then on the topic of locations and areas, Ufaga, um, I know from watching uh, Mike, uh, Diana, and Adam's videos and, and like, you know, the, those trip videos that they're, the Ufaga Pomilio appears to be very yeah. common in like Costa Rica. But where are yeah. some of the other ones coming from? So, um, you know, it's the Pomilio are generally all Central America, um, Panama, Costa Rica, I don't think there's any down in like Ecuador or anything like that. Um, that's where all the large obligates are from. The, the, I guess the bulk of the large obligates are coming from Colombia. Um, and then you have companies like Tesoros de Colombia who are sustainably now bringing in um, 
frogs that are, you know, captive bred down there and then they ship them here, which is awesome because a lot of those frogs were highly smuggled in the 80s and 90s and completely depleted populations. They're still smuggled today. I think they are the, um, you know, a lot of, I, I guess I don't want to make it a, get into a huge debate or anything, but um, a lot of people in the frog hobby seem to really like put their foot down on a certain tinctorius from Brazil or a certain, you know, galactinatus from Brazil. Um, but they're already here in the hobby and everything. And they, they go crazy about those, but they're not going crazy about the um, large obligates. You don't see them being talked about as much, nearly as much. I mean, I'm sure fish and wildlife and everything looks at those too, but um, they're the ones in my opinion that are affected the most. Um, I guess we can get into that in a few minutes, but um, yeah. because the Tinctorius and the Galactinatus, those frogs are, um, you know, on they're they're not endangered. You know, they're least least threat, least, least threatened concern. species. Yeah. yeah, least concern. Um, where some of those large obligates, the um, Adelopa species, a lot of the Amarega species. I mean, they're critically endangered. So, and and they don't produce, you know those frogs don't produce nearly as many frogs as the Tinctorius and Galactinatus, especially in captivity. Um, if you're talking about like things being smuggled for the, the hobby, um, you know, you need to supply America with a Tinctorius. You could, you could have five pairs, five pairs of adult frogs and they could supply the hobby in, where like, with Histrionica Pamilio, <laughs> you need, you, yeah, exactly. You need, yeah for like histrionica and and pamilio and those frogs to you know i guess keep up with the demand i mean you need hundreds and hundreds of pairs because let's be honest i mean if i have a histrionica pair of mine if they produce 10 healthy offspring in a year i'm stoked like that's a good year right. is 10 10 babies where tinctorious i could pretty much raise up a hundred froglets in my sleep. I mean, it's not, they just like, if you have the conditions right and you have their tank set up right and you stay on top of pooling eggs and raising tadpoles, they're going to continue to breed where, you know, the Ufaga it's, you know, some, some people have like really, really, um, really good pairs where they're getting, you know, Pamelio, they're getting six or eight froglets every three to four months. Like that's awesome. Um, but that is on the rare side. I would say the average is probably three to four, three to four froglets every three to four months. And not all those are always healthy. Um, so sometimes you get one that has SLS or has some sort of metabolic bone disease. You know, they're just, they're pain in the neck. Um, but you know, that, that's, I guess I kind of went off on a tangent there, but no, um, yeah. Yeah. And your original question with where some of the frogs are from or why they're, they're hard to attain is, and still even with Tesoros, um, they're down there in Colombia and, and it's hard for them to get permits for frogs. And also some of the land that these frogs are from um, are extremely dangerous with cartel because um, they're literally on the lands where these cartels are doing their operations. And it's like, right. there's, there's all kinds of, of, you know, extreme danger when getting some of these locales in Colombia. Um, Ecuador has, has some large obligates, mainly Sylvatica. Um, the Histrionica and Lamani, those are all from the, uh, from Colombia mainly. I was going to ask, um, so when you say, sorry to cut you off. So when you say large obligates, it's, it's uh, those species of the Lamani, the Histrionica, 
and Sylvatica. And Sylvatica. Okay, interesting. Yep. Now there, yeah, it's Sylvatica because there are some Sylvatica that are as big as um, Histrionica and Lamani. Um, there are, are also are some Sylvatica in Colombia too, but um, yeah, there's. I'm trying to think another large obligate. Um, there's there's a couple other obligate species, but they're mainly small. Um, there's kind of like an in between that uh, granulifera. It's kind of a. They're not as small as Pamelio, and they're not as big as Sylvatica. They're kind of in between there. Um, so it's just like a, a medium, a medium right. fungi. But uh, yeah, they're they're mainly all south of of uh, Pamelio in Central America. But yeah, it's uh it's it's really cool, and they are like you were saying, they're very abundant. Um, like if you go to Bastimentos, you're gonna you're gonna come across lots of Bastimentos Pamelio. Um, I mean, they're, yeah, they're everywhere. Down there. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Just yeah, see one in the wild. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful vacation spot too. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that's awesome. And then, so, uh, and then to touch on what, again, what you were saying earlier. So, uh, some of the large obligates are even harder to, to attain. Um, yeah. And is yeah, that, I mean, is it's that just... because they're sorry to, again, to, but, uh, yeah, is that because their populations are also, less in the wild than like let's say the pomeriers is again going back to the restrictions in the areas yeah i mean there's some some like i mean lamani for example is like the red lamani there's locales that used to i mean i i don't know personally but i mean i've talked to people and heard stories of people that when you 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 were down there in the 80s and 90s just on a trail or even driving in a car they're everywhere on the side of the roads they're everywhere those localities have none there's nothing there anymore um there is a few locales of the red lamani still yellow lamani um the, the lamani got hit really bad i mean they used to get import exported by the hundreds in the 80s and 90s and they were just in a wooden box and shipped wherever and i mean half to three quarter of them died um and then the other thing was nobody knew how to keep them alive so it was just something like there's thousands of these frogs everywhere we can collect them it won't hurt the population that we don't know anything about their breeding anything like that let's bring them to the hobby and we were just killing it's like yeah no big deal they're we're killing them there's tons of them um so yeah. those populations which is really sad um so but there are populations where um you can still find quite a bit of the histrionica and, and sylvatica and lamani out there um it's it's not like they're all super you know low in numbers but um there's there's certain certain that are just you know basically extinct um which is sad yeah no very um and then so the care the care uh, like you said that they they didn't know how to care for them is that because they're very different than keeping i've never kept them personally are they very different than keeping tinctorius and phylogrades and ranatomia is there something different in their care is just the breeding that's a lot yeah. tougher it's it's so i don't want to make it seem like it's completely different um i mean all my tanks are basically set up the same right. um you know plant choice is one thing you have to look at with dealing with large obligates um vitamins and, and supplements seem to be a little bit more important than with your tinctorious um and phyllobates um and they they just seem I don't know if it's their skin or something, but their, their skin seems more sensitive um, than the other frogs. So there's things you have to look out for 
not that you don't have to look out for in tinct. I mean, you have to look out for bacterial and fungal infections in tinctorious and anything. Um, but they seem, you know, very, um, I guess, prone to to having some issues um, with their skin, and they can get same thing with uh, terribilis. Though. They get the foot rot if it's too wet um, yes. in the tank. That they're very prone to getting foot rot. So similar thing with uh, histrionica. They can get foot rot really easily, um, and it seems to be a big issue with frogs that were raised by tesoros um, and those frogs that came here, people were keeping too wet. I think there was a big jump in the wetness that uh, the wetness of the tank that tesoros was keeping the frogs. And then people were getting them here and keeping them really wet. And they were all like having really bad bacterial infections, fungal infections. And a lot of those frogs were lost in the, the recent imports. Um, but they've kind of figured it out that they got to be kept a little drier, at least for the first few months, slowly transition them into um, like the, the way. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm, I'm a big uh, proponent of keeping, you know, my vivariums have, have good ventilation. Right. Um, I think it's really important. You know, the, the kind of archaic way of keeping a full solid glass top with no ventilations. I, I think that's kind of people are realizing is not the way to do it. Um, so, so, you know, the, well, I actually, I get this question a lot. You know, people ask me, how often should I miss my tank? And I, was, I tell okay, everybody, I yeah, yeah. It's, I tell everyone the same thing. It, it's different for everybody. It depends on what kind of tanks you have set up, how much ventilation you have set up, your ambient humidity in your room, the ambient temperature in your room. There's all kinds of factors that come into play here. Um, the best way I describe to people, um, where you know your tank is in a good humidity range. Um, you know, I have my misting system go off eight times a day, eight times every 24 hours. Okay. So it's every three hours, it's, it's going off for 20 to 30 seconds. Now, my garage is extremely dry. My tanks all have really good ventilation, and I have a fan running in the room. So nice. after misting, yes. And, and, and the, a good way to like kind of measure your humidity is that if you figure if you think about in the jungle and it it rains, you know, everything is going to be drenched, soaked. But then in about 2 hours after it's done raining, the leaves are crunchy when you're walking on the leaves and it kind of dries out. It's still humid. Um you could still have some kind like I, I have all my tanks right now cuz I have a lot of vents kind of closed off. Um just one of the vents, you know, I keep the door vent right now closed off cuz my heater in here is it really dries it out. So um, it kind of reduces the amount of humidity leaving the tank. Yes. Um, so, cause I want to keep some of the humidity in there. If I had them both open, like right now, the humidity in my garage is at 19%. So it's, it's pretty dry. Oh, okay. It gets yeah. down sometimes to like seven, 8%. The Resner heater I use is it gets extremely dry. So, um, I cover up, cover up the door vent right now. So there's still ventilation up the top, but there's not as much fresh air coming in the door. Um, cause I need to retain some of that humidity, but so I, I missed my tanks a lot. The tank is wet. Um, and then about two to three hours later, it dries up, um, or even an hour later, it can dry up. And, um, you know, my tanks right now, the glass, the front of the glass all has condensation on them. Um, none of them are dry. There's, there's a little condensation on every, all the front glass right now, but inside the tank, the leaves are dry. That is a good, good kind of indicator that the tank is humid. Obviously the glass is, you know, getting condensation on it. That's, that means there's, there's good humidity in there. And the ground is dry. If there's if there's tons of moisture on your glass and the leaves are soaking wet, um, that's when you can have some issues come up. 
Um, and, and I don't mean soaking wet at certain times during the day. I mean, always, if time. it's, if the, if the leaves are always wet, you're misting too much. Um, and it's, it's a balance. You got to kind of figure out with, like I said, with your room and you take into everything into account, you'll find what's going to work for you. Um, how good your drainage so, layer is as well, or how exactly. your method. Yeah. 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 The draining draining's huge. Um, and it's something that I, since I drill my tanks, I mean, I would never go back to not drilling the tanks. Um, I drill all my tanks and it's something, it's something I never even have to worry about. Like I don't ever think about unless sometimes like, like currently, uh, in Ohio, it's, I don't know, freezing and my drain line, I have all my tanks, they run to a drain line and then the drain line runs outside on a, to a, a, a rock of, or a, a bed of rocks in my, next to my driveway. So it's frozen right now. That's frozen. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's kind of backed up, and I have had to manually do what I used to do and stick a tube underneath and siphon it out in a yeah. couple tanks um, recently, just a few tanks. But hopefully we'll get some decent weather where that, you know, will start draining out again. Yeah. See, that's impossible for me because it's going to be freezing up here for the next, like, three months anyway. So, I've been, <laughs> yeah, I need to find another method for sure. Yeah. That's that's very interesting, though. Um, uh, that Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's something that I also get asked and ask very frequently because it's an interesting topic you know everyone keeps their frogs uh yep. at, at, like it's it's a big debate that goes on even you on the facebook groups uh keep them oh, drier absolutely. Or, or, or i'm keeping my frogs too humid or anything yep. but um that's awesome okay so back to the ufago <laughs> yep. i have yep. like a million questions on them um sure. when it comes to the breeding they are obligate egg eaters correct yep um yep I've heard, I don't know where I heard this, but I heard that there is now some form of um, like how they make the Rapashi gel, uh, something that you can do or feed that kind of replaces the eggs. Have you heard of this? And oh. do you know if it works or from that? No, I've, I've not heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I know that you can keep, the tadpoles will eat other things. They'll eat okay. algae, they'll eat diatom, they'll eat fruit flies, spring little bugs that could fall in the water they will eat that um but they don't develop off of it so you can keep a tadpole alive for five months and then start feeding it you know it's trophic eggs from as long as it's the same species i think it's okay you still may have some issues um but they will um you know they'll start developing and that's normally it takes a pamilio i think it's 60 eggs it may be 75 eggs. Wow. Um, 60 eggs to uh, complete the metamorphose. So that normally takes about two to three months. And that's a big you know, strain on the females. Big strain. It's big huge. Strain and, and, yeah. and that's why, that's why, like, when some people tell me, they're like, I've my, you know, my pair got eight offspring this, this time. I'm like, holy, like, wow. That's 480 yeah. eggs. Um, yeah that's a ton for just a, a two and a half month span. Like that's wild. Like I have someone tiny, tiny two. frog. Yeah. And the history on the, the Lamani supposedly are 120 eggs. It's double. Um, that's now that's what I've been told. I didn't actually, I've not actually seen it myself, um, but I had friends, to, I've had friends tell me that yeah, the Lamani take, it's like double the amount of eggs that Pamilio and histrionica could take. So sometimes they can take longer. Um, and it's it's more strain on them so um yeah i mean i've bred both but i don't 
I don't get to count all the eggs that go in the bromeliad. I just sure, sometimes yeah. I can sh <laughs> I can shine a light and see there's you know and I will say I, I am impressed sometimes at the amount of eggs that are dropped in that little bromeliad axle at one time. Um, so it's not just one at a time. No, no, no. There's okay. times I've seen like eight to ten eggs in that just one drop. Um, where you know if I went the day before and looked in the bromeliad axle. I saw no eggs, went the next day, and there's 10 eggs. There's like a clutch of 10 eggs wow. sitting there for them to and eat. Then so, how long does it take them to eat? Does, do you know, like roughly? I, I haven't really – I didn't document that or anything, so okay. I don't have like accurate data. Um, but I know when I've – because I've raised some myself too with eggs, like not in fertile eggs, for, eggs that were fertilized by the male, but I just still threw them in and they eat them. Wow, um, okay. And – I used to throw in like four to five eggs at a time. They'd be gone in a day or even sometimes a few hours. Um, so they, they do gobble them down. But <laughs> raise and I raised Lamani, of course. I didn't choose Histrionica to raise by myself. Um, and, yeah, it's not something that I could recommend to anybody. It's a lot of work um, because you also kind of have to – just so that it doesn't make a big mess in the water and foul the water. I was I was basically taking the yolk out of the, um, like, you know, uh, so it, it was like, like de-jellying yeah, the egg. Basically, sort of. yes. Wow. And and I would I would do like, pull a clutch of ten eggs, do that, and I'd give each tadpole two to three eggs. If I found two clutches, I'd give them like double the eggs. Um, but yeah, and, and it's important. I will say too, when you're raising them yourself, the tadpoles, if they're like. You know, because they're young. Usually, when people do them themselves, they pull the, they see the. Because there's sometimes your histrionica, pamilio, they'll lay clutches like crazy. There's like ten clutches in the tank, and they only transport five tadpoles. So you may have eight tadpoles sitting in a in a canister, and you're just like, "What well, am I just gonna let these things dry out and die?" Um, yeah. Which a lot of people do, um, or some people try to raise them themselves, and that's what I did. So you're raising these tadpoles from the time they're a day old. And they will not, I noticed they would not eat any eggs. Like I couldn't give them erratus eggs or tinctorious eggs or pamilio eggs. Like they wouldn't eat anything besides the, the parents' eggs or, or same species. Like histrionica, histrionica tadpoles could eat histrionica eggs. Um, That's crazy. I did, I did have them eat pamilio eggs, but the ones that ate pamilio eggs, they all had some sort of, uh, deformity or deficiency where they were small. They just, they weren't correct. So um, it's, I'd say it's very important for the first four to six weeks. If you're going to raise them yourself to use species, same eggs. And then after that, they get some size to them. Um, you can feed them tinctorious. And um, I know like a lot of, I think Tesoros and I know some other people, Europeans, they'll use the uh, Philobates vitatus eggs. Because they're like tons of eggs, and I can I have over a hundred frogs. <laughs> I, I can confirm I would definitely use them as feeders, like hundred percent. That's what that's what a lot of those people they have the vitatas for the feeder eggs. Um, yeah. and I and they've done it successfully. But again, it's a ton of work, and you know if you're someone like Tesoros, um, you're a sustainable farm, like that's what you do, and yeah. it's kind of a way of business, and you know people that are doing this for a living um it's that i'd say yeah it may be worth it to you if you if you've got help 
but you have someone helping in your frog room and they want to go through and do that, like sure, go for it. But for me, I, I don't do this. You know, I'm not a company. Um, it's not, this isn't my job. It's a hobby. And I, I, I mean, I do make money off it as well, but um, it's not like, it's not my, my main source of income. So to me, I just let the frogs do their thing. Um, that's why I, one of the things I love about the Ufaga is just you let them do their thing. And um, it's just, it's so interesting watching the whole breeding behavior. Um, and it's, it's always super exciting when you see, even if I've seen a redhead histrionica come out 45 times, the next one is just as exciting. So I'm like, oh, what kind of patterns this one have? It's always fun to see the patterns. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really cool. That's, that's, yeah, I, I can, I can agree with that. I, it, that, it's super interesting. Again, I haven't kept them yet. I would love to one day, but uh, I would love to see the whole process of the, of the care. So you mentioned they lay about like, they'll, they'll lay multiple tadpoles at once and only move five five tadpoles yeah. they, they will always five is that just like uh no i'm just i'm just i was just throwing out a oh, number just sometimes no, okay yeah okay. i've had them i've had them lay you know sorry the light maybe just changed in here my neon light just went on um they uh and my misting system is going off now um so i've had them where they've laid you know six to ten eggs in their they're developing in four different canisters um, so I'm like, man, I'm going to have a bunch this time. And then I have one frog come out, you know, because they just decided that to, uh, that, to that they probably transported. And I would guess if you only have one come out, they may have transported three, three to six. Um, and then oftentimes they just decide, I don't know if they, if they can sense something or they can tell that something's wrong with the tadpole and they just stop feeding it. Um, sometimes the, the tadpoles just die in the water. Water, if the water is real fouled, if it doesn't get right, um, it's because it's important to flush bromeliads. And if you're not staying on top of flushing them manually, which oftentimes I don't, luckily, I, I missed enough where the yeah. misting system can kind of take care of that. But if they, for whatever reason, sometimes you're just like, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads, like, why are you laying these tadpoles in the worst spots? Yeah. Um, you're just like, it's a dry spot, doesn't get hit by the misting system, it's in a half decayed, dying leaf. I listened to a podcast recently um, where there was a, a, a guy who studies them in the lab. He studies, studies Pamilio and he was saying a similar thing. And their thinking is that a lot of times Ufaga may lay tadpoles in a half dead leaf or a leaf that's about to die because that is a place where uh, it's less likely to have predators and outside things come and check that out, um, mm -hmm. which was really interesting to me. I'm like, that's Oh, that, I guess that makes yeah. sense. A big, fresh, fresh, healthy, you know, water nursery that's, you know, easy, easy to view and you can see into it. Um, it's probably a likely spot where something would come and check out and see if there's anything in there they want to eat. So was, yeah. that was kind of interesting. Very interesting to me. It was a really cool uh, guest on Amphibicast. I really enjoyed that episode. Is but, this the last um, one with the carotenoid paper? Yes. Or one of, yeah, yeah. One of the few last ones yeah. at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, that it was, was like a very ago, interesting yeah. episode. Yes. Yeah, yes, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I didn't um, catch that. That I, I don't remember hearing that, but that, that I'm probably gonna have to hear it a few more times because that was definitely a very yeah. interesting episode. Because um, it's it's something I, I've looked at. I'm like, why are you guys? And like my Lamani do it constantly. They're yeah. they're my Lamani are my favorite frogs. Um, I absolutely love them, and they just I'm, every time I find a tadpole, I'm like, there's been four different times that I've I've had to raise them up myself from luckily they were like 
uh, about two thirds grown. The tadpoles were, but I see a leaf. It starts just hanging down. It's not holding water anymore. And I'm about to pull it and I see wiggling. I'm like, Oh my God, they, they, they do it constantly. They lay in these leaves that and end up not holding water. And if I didn't pull it, the tadpole would, would definitely, I've never heard of, um, I have never heard of Ufaga moving a tadpole to a spot and then it stops holding water and then they move it again. They've never, I, I they just, just, they just they got, give they, up let on them, they let them go. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. So like I've had to do that oftentimes with my Lamani where I've never had to do it with any of my other frogs. So my Lamani are always doing that, laying them in the, I, I say like the bonehead, just biggest bonehead places. Um, yeah. Always like really dried leaves at the bottom of bromelia that are like literally about to fall off. And I'm just like, I have to check every day and make sure it's still holding water. Um, but yeah, they, they constantly do that. It's, it's really annoying. That's very interesting. I wonder if, if they have like a different logic to it or if there's a different reason to it. Like you said, maybe those are the weaker tadpoles or um, the decaying leaf. Maybe that's what's attracting flies that are then dying in the water that the yeah. tadpoles are eating. I, I don't know. It, but it um, could be. It's, it's a very interesting thought. Um, now, when you're flushing the, the bromeliads, this is something I've always wondered. How do you not flush out the tadpole? <laughs> so you don't want to flush it with a very strong stream of something. Um, of, oftentimes, you know, a pump sprayer, like a pump mister. Um, and if you spray in the, the very center of the bromeliad, the, the centermost axle, and that way you could even spray in there with a pretty good pressure. Um, but the water that, you know, it, it flushes in a way where it's not like, like, you know, throw it super high. Yeah, it's yeah. not a super high flow. Um, I, uh, hold on one I see it. <laughs> I have the exact. Well, I, uh, I use this. Oh, okay. This is I something I use. Um, okay. So I just get spring water and then I have a bulkhead into the lid. So like I can unscrew the lid here. Um, and then basically what I do is I just have Miss King line attached to it. And so when I want to flush, because I like to flush manually with spring water, um, there's a whole debate about spring water and RO water. And yeah. so RO water doesn't have the nutrients and the tadpoles need the nutrients. There's all kinds of um, studies and there's all kinds of drama. I like kind of stay out of the drama. So um, I just use both. So I use RO water and my misting system, and then I manually flush with the spring water. But all I do is I basically just turn this upside down and then I put this wherever I want to. So if there's a tadpole I know is in a certain spot, I can flush it out that way. Um, and sometimes I, I do wait. Um, from the time I know that frogs transported tadpoles, I like to wait a good month. Um, Cause when a tadpole is super young, you could easily flush it out. Okay. Um, and if, if I don't know the exact date, but I know they're taking care of tadpoles and I want to flush the bromeliad, I'll put a 16 ounce cup sort of like wedged underneath where I'll check and see where the Wait. water would flow out. So I kind of put a 16 cup, 16 ounce cup there and I have caught a few tadpoles doing yeah, that. Okay. So, um, they are generally smaller though, not bigger. Um, but again, it's just, it's something important with the flow, the amount of flow that's coming out and doing that flushing. Um, you know, if you took like a, garden hose and just like, sprayed it in there yeah they'll probably go flying in um that being said i'm sure some could actually stay in because they they wedge themselves tight in the corners um there's times you know i actually a lot of people don't know this but um a way to tell if there's a tadpole in an axle 
is a good way to check. You check at night when the lights are off and you shine a flashlight and you can kind of see in, in the axle better. You'll see little tiny micro bubbles um, in that bromeliad, like right, right along the backside where the water is meeting the next leaf up. You'll see a bunch of little micro bubbles there because that's the actual tadpole swims up and, and they're breathing air. Okay. So they create little bubbles and the water's usually slightly cloudy. Um, it's not like crystal clear and that's usually all the eggs and all that stuff in there. So all that cloudiness and nastiness that's in there, that's why I think it's important to kind of flush that stuff out. Um, it's like doing water even when you're growing them yourself. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's because yeah I, I was staying on top of that like crazy when I had them in little cups but um, yeah I, I do now that I think about it oftentimes when I'm flushing I do put a 16 ounce cup under the bromeliad also to catch a lot of times there's still trophic eggs in there um, and I when I'm looking in the water that all the water drained out there's still eggs so I'll I'll pull the eggs out with a spoon and just throw them back in the axle where I know there's a, a tadpole so but like fertile um, eggs like. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's, it's eggs oh, that yeah. it's eggs that they, they they fed. It was the trophic eggs yeah, that yes. I flushed out some of those trophic eggs. So I'm like, yeah, let me give them back. Yeah. Um, so so it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's food. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just it's a super interesting process watching the whole thing. And um, I mean, I've been keeping Pamilio for I think ten years, nine or ten years, and I've been keeping oh. Histrionica for eight. Um, and they're they are all very cool species the histrionica i do tend to like more um mainly it's their behavior and and their boldness i mean not all pamilia are shy um but like bastimentos are incredibly bold for me they're always out they do not care if i slide the door open they don't care if i put a camera in their face they don't care um i see them all the time but like my salarte are a little on the shy side um my scooter, they're bold, but they're just so small. Sometimes they're hard to find. There's, and yeah. you have a well-planted tank. It's like, it's really hard to find them. Um, my histrionica, it's, it's very rare where I'm like, where are they? They're just always out. And, you know, Pamilio will walk. Um, they like kind of strut when they're breeding. Histrionica do. Yeah. It, it's, it's really cool. Like, you know, a female will be around males sitting here calling and then the female moves and you'll see so if she moves this way, he'll go like, he like moves Almost like robotically sure. and then he'll start strutting and like kind of walking after her, which is cool. But histrionic could kind of do that all the time. Like if they're feeding, if, if you put flies in, they walk to the food. Um, now if they're spooked, they'll hop. But oftentimes the histrionica, sylvatica, they just, they walk everywhere. And yeah. it's silly to say, I've said this before, um, it, it makes them seem like they're more intelligent, if that makes any sense. But everything they do, it looks like there's a purpose. Um, where when you watch Tinctorious, it's like they're just like food. What are you doing? Yeah, hundred like, percent. They're just like big clum. They're clumsy, kind of. Yeah. Uh, the histrionic are, I don't know. They're just really bold. They're awesome to watch breed. They're so variable in pattern, and there's tons of different colors. They're just so unique, like the Tato just such a unique looking frog um yeah just absolutely awesome so yeah. that's the, the large obligates have become my favorite over time but i still love all my, i mean i love pamelia i love tinctorius phallobages love them all sure. so yeah no yeah the for sure no i i can i can imagine that you know i, I got multiple species now but i still like 
I barely ever see my Vitalis, but when I see them, I'm like, yes, that they were yeah. the first species I ever got. Maybe a bit of a mistake, yep. but they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's awesome. Okay, then before we jump off the uh, Ufaga topic, um, I've heard a lot about, you mentioned it as well, that they need more um, uh, minerals and vitamins and all of that stuff. And I've heard a lot about the calcium clay. Yeah. Do you use it? So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I use calcium clay. Um, I don't use it like some people use it as a, an entire substrate. I kind of make little okay. cups. Um, like yes. for, for some of the enclosures, I use like the eight ounce cup. It's like a wide, short cup. Um, and then I yeah. use these like little two ounce yeah. cups as well. Um, I use these in froglet tubs or just in tanks, but I just put some of the calcium clay in the cup and I kind of fill it with water. Let, let all the clay absorb the water and then I just I kind of bury it like the so just a little bit of the lip sticks up out of the substrate or sponge filter matter whatever I'm using um, and I absolutely have seen frogs soak it up like often um, yeah. so I don't know exactly what's going on there but I know they're seeking it out um, you know going to a, a 44 inch wide tank and I put one of these cups in there and the frog is sitting directly on this it's like there's a reason it's often doing that. Um, yeah. Nothing about this is enticing looking or like I, that's it. I don't put it in like a, a hidden spot. I'll set it right in the middle and they go and sit on there. Yeah. And I don't put like food on there. There's no nothing that could be um, basically telling them that there's a reason to go sit here besides something they're soaking up to that pelvic patch. I wonder um, how they know that it's there as well. Yeah. I, I wonder that too. Or if they're just exploring or if there's a smell to it or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly how they know it's there, but I mean, daily I can find some frog in my collection sitting in the clay. Um, I think it's it's it seems to be more so females than males. I don't know if it's because the females are using so much; their vitamins are just depleted from all the egg the trophic eggs they need and all the work that they're doing. Um, but I usually do see females sitting in it, and then also froglets. Um, because froglets, some of them morph out so tiny, especially with like Pamilio, the Escudo are just unbelievably small. Um, and it takes a while for them to grow, number one. And then number two, it takes a while for them to be able to eat the dusted fruit flies. You know, sometimes it takes six weeks. Um, where six weeks without calcium, that's when you get issues like metabolic bone disease. So, um, if, if the froglets are able to soak up some calcium through the clay and through their pelvic patch when they're young, um, maybe that's what keeps them, you know. And that's not to say if you don't use clay, it's not like all your frogs are going are gonna to have metabolic bone disease because I didn't use clay for years and I had many healthy frogs. But um, it's just, it's something that, that I think is the, the fact that they're constantly soaking it up. There's, there's something going on there. It seems to be benefiting them. It's definitely not hurting them. I kind of do the same thing with UVB, um, but, you know, I don't know the actual science behind it or the data behind it that what's actually going on. But, um, you know, I've heard people talk about the pelvic patch in dart frogs and frogs in general. And I had a buddy, Mike Novi, that was down in Costa Rica. And he's like, yeah, I I've, I've seen Pamilio and Aratus literally in 98 degree direct sunlight on a clay patch sitting there soaking up UVB and also they've got to be absorbing something from that clay too. 
Yep. Yeah, that just brings up so many more questions. <laughs> um so okay so you, do you use it first of all do you use it for um like your tinctorious and your file base as well or is it just something you're using with your fog currently just using with the ufaga right now um i'm sure if i did use it with tinctorious and and some of the other frogs which it's probably a good idea i probably should um I'm, I'm sure it would benefit them as well um i mean the tinctorious they're just and the file babies too it's like they're just they're like little little bulldog they're like heathen so it's like you throw in you could snow cover some heidi eye my terribilis eat like five eighths inch crickets so it's like they're getting tons of calcium i don't know how much it would actually help them with their bones maybe it's got some other thing that could help with with maybe egg production or just overall health maybe so it's like i guess it can't hurt to try and if i notice them sitting there soaking it up it's like well they're using it they clearly enjoy it um you know it's like someone giving their their frog a I don't know a little water feature and they like to sit in it and they're like yeah they like the water yeah it's like it doesn't do anything but if they sit in there and they seem to like it then they like it um so that's that's what it would be more for towards me because I don't really have any issues with metabolic bone disease or, or like unhealthy offspring and stuff like that with my for larger sure. frogs so um you know I've had tons of SLS and metabolic bone disease with Ufaga in general I've had some come out missing a limb, some come out just very bizarre deformities. Um, and that's a common thing. Like people, people deal with it. With, with yeah. I've also heard of uh, something like they have seizures when they're low on calcium, something like that. Is yeah. This, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I always keep, um, I guess with the calcium and vitamins we were talking about, I mean, I, I have multiple, Multiple types of calcium I use. My main one is Rapashi Calcium Plus. That's my main feeder for, for calcium. Um, I have their vitamin A as well. But then I have Renarium's vitamin A. I have Renarium's uh, car carotenoid plus, which is huge. I think it's it's an awesome supplement. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to have a few medications um, or things that can aid with with Thufaga being super prone to seizures when they're low in calcium. I think amphibian ringer solution is is absolutely vital to have. Um, not just if you notice it in frogs in your collection, if you see one start having a seizure, I mean, it can completely turn them around. But mainly, uh, it's huge for shipping. Um, Ufaga is being, when they're shipped to you and you, they just look weak and they look like Skinnier tons of stress. Yeah, yeah. It's st stress is a huge thing for the calcium, the, the seizures as well. So it's if they're low in calcium, and they get spooked or they're stressed, that's usually when the like I've had frogs that completely seize up, looks like they're not breathing and they're dead, and someone's like, no, 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 it's not dead. Get a little cup of ringers, you know, put an eighth of an inch in the in the bottom, set the frog in it. As long as its nose is above, and just give it twenty minutes, put a lid on the cup. And I come back and the frog's sitting on the wall, just like ready to go. I'm like, oh. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, frogs that have seemed like they are dead and you put them in the ringers and they're about there, they bounce back and they, you know, it, it's a way for them to, it basically balances all their, uh, you know, the electrolytes and everything in their system where they're not having to use stress and having to use some of the vitamins um, that they normally would use just to, to breathe, to stay alive. Yeah. Um, so it balances their whole system. Um, I also think calcium gluconate is a is a very important thing to have. It's I get it from uh, Frogs and Things. It's a company here, and um, 
it just he sends a little a little bottle and it's got the already measured out powder in it you just fill it with reverse osmosis water shake it up let it dissolve and then um it's great to use for froglets that may not be eating calcium or not absorbing enough calcium through the clay you just put you know mist the frog and then put one drop of the calcium gluconate on its back and it's a way for them to get calcium um it's it's very same thing with the ringers i would if i, if I saw a frog that seized up i know that's it's low in calcium and it's super spooked so i put it in the cup of ringers give it 20 minutes pull it out of the ringers put it back in the tank and then i put a drop of calcium gluconate on its back um to give it the best chance possible you know not to say that every frog makes it from that of course um some some do perish and it sucks, but uh, you know I just actually lost uh, my blue histo my blue histo female yesterday, found it uh, drowned in a bromeliad. Okay, These and you things... don't know if it was this. I mean, those things happen in forests, but you don't know if it was. Uh, yeah. uh, like I, a I had a I had a suspicion. Yeah, no, I don't. I had I had a suspicion something was up with the tank or with with that frog, because um, it was just being more reclusive. It was normally always out eating. But it wasn't coming out and eating as much, but I did see it eat. And every time I did see it, it looked like a healthy weight looked good. Um, but I just still, I don't know if I called it my uh, my tropical garage senses. <laughs> I said yeah. to somebody yesterday, I was like, my froggy senses were going off. Um, and uh, I opened the door yesterday to feed and I just, that all too familiar smell of a rotting frog in water. I was like, yeah, something doesn't smell right. Uh, something is, yeah. um, <laughs> so I was searching around everywhere. couldn't find it. And then I like, just saw really cloudy water and I knew they weren't rearing any tadpoles. I was like, God dang it. And then, uh, yeah, just looked completely healthy. Still had a healthy weight, just no lesions or wounds or anything. So I don't know what happened, but it's something that happens with Ufaga adults. Something that happens with Ufaga froglets. Sometimes you just find them drowned in bromelia. There's no rhyme or reason to it that it, it's almost impossible to see why it happened unless you watch that frog go in the water and like drown in there. Um, you know, for all I know, it could have got spooked by something could have got spooked by me and went down in the water and possibly had a seizure and never came out and just drowned in the water. Sure. Um, but it's, it's something that happens and you just, you know, that's, it's one of the, uh, you know, large obligate keeping is in all, fun and it's, games <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's a lot it, it's definitely the most rewarding species when they do successfully produce and it's just like because they're kind of the pinnacle of the dart frog hobby and um yeah. so they they reproduce and you get healthy viable offspring you're just like man i feel really good about this and then when you lose an adult for no reason you're just like that's a what 1500 to 2000 dollar frog i just lost yeah. and yeah. don't know why and it looked you know it's it, it, it makes you start second guessing everything. Yeah. Like, did I do something wrong? Is, but then like the other frog in the tank is fine. So you're just like, I don't think so. It's just, it's one of those things. Sometimes Ufaga, yeah. yep, yep. Yeah. It can be very sensitive, and that's yeah, that's kind of I guess part of the reason of why they're also a lot more expensive. Um, there's just things can happen, and. Uh, the numbers you get is the other thing. I mean, there's just, it's just harder to breed. Yeah. There's just low numbers. Yep. Yep. Low numbers. I, I guess I don't even tell people, I, I usually tell people they're not that hard to breed. They're not that hard to get to reproduce. The difficult part is getting Raising healthy, babies. viable offspring and yeah. then getting those offspring from that from day one to day four is the most challenging part about keeping large obligates or 
Familio, I'd say day one to day 60. Um, they're usually fine after 60 days. They're usually fine. Um, I've had histrionica that three months in they're beautiful, healthy frogs. Sweet. I think I'm out of the woods and in two weeks, they get skinny and die. I'm just like, what? They won't eat. They won't take anything. I'm giving them supplements, giving them calcium gluconate. They just Nothing. wither away and they die. And I mean, I treat them for if it's some sort of uh, parasite. I treat them for parasite. Nothing. It's just like people tell <laughs> there's like the four-month marker. Once they hit four months, they seem to be okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's it's just so weird how three months a frog's super chunky, healthy, doing everything it's supposed to be doing. And then in two weeks, it just, just for no reason. Out. You don't change anything. You don't add anything to the tank. You don't remove the frog from where it's, you just keep it where it was. And Same it was routine. Doing great. And then I'll, yep. Just goes to, goes to crap. You just don't, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And that's, that's the frustrating part. Um, it's just, sometimes there's just nothing you can do. So happens. Yeah. Uh, I keep mar- uh, mountain or mountain horn dark frogs. Wow, that nothing I said there made sense. I keep mountain <laughs> dragons, and okay. uh, they I haven't bred them yet. They're still a little too young, but uh, like doing the research, everyone, everything I keep hearing is uh, you're not out of the woods with the babies until it's been like six months, and then you can like yep. start selling them or whatever. Because the first six months they could just drop off any minute. So I know exactly what you mean. It's it yeah, it sucks. Yeah, um, yeah. That no, that's okay. So. Maybe to move away from that and maybe to move away from yeah. the Ophaga a little bit. Um, you also sure. breed Tinctorius. Yep. Um, what are your opinions on uh, raising the tadpoles communally? I know you, I so, know you do it. Uh, do, do, you, yeah. uh, do you have success with it? Because uh, I'm yeah, getting tired of I, many cups. <laughs> I did that for years. You know, yeah. I did the single cup for... I did single cup from 2006 to 2010. And then I started doing tackle boxes. I was getting little tackle boxes and I had little compartments. Compartments, yeah. Basically same idea as single cup. But it did take up less space because I could stack them. That's smart. Um, And I did that for a while. And then I started doing the communally raised and there's a couple pros and cons to it. I don't even know if I consider it really a, a con, um, but some people might, some people that do it for a business, you know, the best way I could say it is that the actual morphlets, the frogs coming out of the water were double the size, double the power, double the strength. I mean, possibly triple. Like they they were so much bigger than raising hardier. alone. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they could jump like frogs. I raised in a, in a cup by themselves. When I, the day out of the water, they may be able to hop like a couple inches, like two inches or so, maybe. Um, day one, um, it may have took ten to ten to twenty days to where they could jump like a, a substantial amount, and they were eating pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, the communal, community raised ones, day one, they can jump 10, 15 inches. Like they, they're like fully developed frogs. Even with the tail, they can jump. They're so much stronger and bigger. Um, and they also seem to take, I don't know if it's a survival, the fittest thing. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's the, the flight or fight response. I don't exactly know what's, what's causing them to be larger. Um, they also morph out, they metamorphose much quicker. It's usually about 
50 to 60 days rather than like 90. Um, so they're morphing out quicker. You don't get all of them though. There still is some cannibalism that goes on. You know, once in a while I'll see a dead tadpole that had been, it's part it's half shredded up by the other tadpoles that ate it. Um, maybe it was just a weak one or something, or it was go, it was going to die anyways. Um, so I don't exactly know if I throw 40 tadpoles in a tub, um, I may get like 32 to 35 to come out. Um, Which so is you may have better. No- yeah. Yeah. And they're all bigger, healthier, healthier, stronger, yeah. faster frogs. Um, which I think is better ultimately than raising 40 in single cups and getting all 40 to come out. Um, now, not I to say that all 40. Would... Yes, exactly. And you still may lose some of those 40 during their growing up phase, which I still may lose some of mine as well. The ones communally, you still may lose, you know, one to five, um, I'd say out of 40. But um, so, so I really enjoy it. It's way less work. Than, I mean, all, you know, you're spending. I can. Hours. I have. I don't know. I have eight tubs, mm-hmm. so I have eight tubs of tadpoles. I do them all species specific now, um, or or even low count specific with the tinctorius and the terabilis. But um, I spend about one minute um, feeding them. I, I use the Rapashi soil and green. Comes in a gel. You know, you make a gel out of it, and I do you know, like a spoonful in each tub. So I literally lift the lift the top put it in, lift the top, put it in. So yeah, I'm about a minute, a minute a day and, when, and I don't feed them every day. It's like, I check every couple days. Um, and then you periodically, when you expect it's been about two months, start checking around, looking and see if you see them with the front arms. Um, sometimes I let the tails absorb completely and they'll climb the glass and I'll throw them in the, in the frog whip bin. Or sometimes I'll pull them. If they have a little tail still, I'll pull them and set them in a morphing cup. I don't really do the morph cup too often anymore. Um, Which is like where you tilt the cup. Yeah, yeah. I just I noticed the tails either really small or they climb the glass. There's like a little ledge on my tubs. I use too. There's like a little ledge um, where they can climb up and they kind of sit there. Sit once there. I see them sitting there, yep. I, I I make them hop in my little fishing net and I throw them in the tub. Okay. But um, it's it's just so much easier, so much less work, and you you get really big healthy froglets. So. The, the only maintenance you really need to do, which sometimes I don't do it, <laughs> is uh, it's good to do a water change. You right. know, I would say like a 50% water change on the tub every like six weeks is probably good, but I probably haven't done mine in like a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Okay. So it's just, and they're still morphing out. They may not be as big as they were. So I think that wa- the water quality has something to do with their size and their health too. Um, it's more volume of water now as well yeah. than when you're raising yeah. them in cups. That's yeah. That's also something. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. And then are you throwing in like, so you have a batch that's in there that's already like a month old. Are you throwing yep. new tadpoles in there as well? Yeah. I have, I have tubs. Yeah. It's like, I have one Katari river tub and there may be four tadpoles that have front arms are ready to come out varying ages from morphing to day one. Um, wow. Okay. So yeah. They don't seem to have issues. That is, but, that, you're right. That would make life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I usually keep the, you know, where I used to transport tadpoles from the Petri dish, like the second they came out of their, the egg casing, I would yeah. throw them, throw them in a cup. I wait now. Yeah. I fill the Petri dish up with water 
and give them five to five to ten days and they get a little bigger and they get like they're swimming really good then i throw them in are you feeding them in there um for the five to ten days Yeah. usually not uh, sometimes i would pour them in a 16 ounce cup and with a little bit of water and i'd feed them um i have some like little sprinkled food i used to um for like rain and tomato if i was going to raise but um yeah i'd feed them for yeah maybe maybe three days um
four tubs with they each have a sponge filter each and then i have another four tubs each with a sponge filter and then i have two two of these big air pumps that are running air to them um but that's all i do is for the filtration some of the tubs i use that um ada amazonia aquasoil okay and um kept the water really clear okay. i don't know if that if it was that, that was is that because you planted it more or i didn't I, don't, I still don't have any plants in there you just java moss java moss occasionally and then i also have uh, like that frog bit or the yes. yeah savinia i think is what it's yeah. called but um sometimes that grows too crazy in there and like it i feel like I, yeah it, like it coats it too much and i'm like i don't know if the, if the tadpoles can actually come up here and breathe right. it's like a thick carpet so right. i try to keep that at bay um because yeah it just it, go, it grows like crazy in there but yeah. um yeah the sponge filter mat that's really all i do for the filtration and yeah it's it's surprising how i guess crispy it keeps the water yeah, yeah, that's that's all I use for my aquariums as well. Wrong side, aquariums yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, no, that's that's awesome. Okay, um, and then another thing I really wanted to ask you about is you've yeah. you've now uh, you've set up tanks with both the both like regular substrate like an ABG mix and whatever, and yeah. what's now known as the Troy Goldberg method, the sponge <laughs> filters, uh, yeah. or not the sponge filters, but the sponge mats and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are you finding the biggest differences are and would you recommend more people switch to, I only use ABG mix currently. Would you recommend more people switch to using the sponge mat? Um, you know, it's, I think it's whatever you're comfortable or whatever you're used to doing. If you're, um, they both work, you know, I, I've a lot of my, the majority of my tanks are some sort of false bottom, um, either grow stones or, the le leaka balls or hydroton whatever that drainage layer and then abg on top that's the majority of my tanks but uh because i just recently started doing the sponge filter the past i don't know two years or two and a half years okay. um i absolutely love the sponge filter mat i can tell you this any tanks that i build from now till whenever until there's something gives me a reason i'm going to continue using the sponge filter Okay. Um, I think in cost, it's about the same as ABG. Yeah. It's cleaner. If you ever need to gut a tank, you just pull the sponge mat out, yeah. pull it out. It drains obviously very well. It's it's a filter pad, so water runs, percolates through it extremely well. Um, I do think there's it's important to use the correct, I guess, porosity, or they call it uh, the PPI, which is mm -hmm. the per pore inch. Um, I like the lower number, like the 10, 10 to 15 PPI water percolates through it really easily where like the 30 PPI is like a, almost like a, it feels to me like similar to a, even like kind of this, the sponge here yeah. or like speaker foam. Um, yeah. It's really fine and water can kind of pull up on top of it and take a while. Yeah. It takes a while for it to percolate through. So I think it's important to use the, the correct PPI. Um, but What's awesome about it for for me is is I mean the weight it's it's obviously lighter than right you know two gallons of ABG soaked in water and moisture it's way lighter um, if you want to use a water feature that water doesn't have to you know a waterfall doesn't have to touch ABG and it's just going through more filtration just, technically yep more filtration it'll be cleaner um, and what I really like about it in terms of 
of scaping a tank is, you know, when you scape a tank with ABG or the ground area and you make hills, like those hills eventually deteriorate over time and you have to put more ABG back in. Oftentimes they just kind of don't sit after they get moisture and everything and all the isopods and springtails break everything down. It just kind of gets back down to a flat level. Yeah. Uh, unless you have like an extreme hill you make with this, you can carve it extremely easy to whatever landscape shape form you ever want to have. And it's never going to lose that shape. So right. it's very easy to do too. just stacking it up. And then you're literally shaving it with those little snap blades I use. Um, it's just extremely easy to do. And you can create an interesting scape on the ground as well. Yeah. Not just the background, you know, most, most, right. Vivarium, it's an interesting background. Everyone considers the hardscape all the background, and then the ground's just a flat piece of dirt, is is how it is. But if you go in the jungle, it's not just a flat piece of dirt. There's all kinds of there's there's root structures, all kinds of stuff. So you can actually create. I mean, if I wanted to, I could create tons of root structures with the foam and just kind of carve it around and do whatever I want on the ground area. And then keep going into the background too. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 just an extremely awesome product, um, and I use it for also um, some of my old tanks that I used to do backgrounds on. I wouldn't now. What I do is I after I carve the foam down, I put silicone. I make like a silicone edge, and I right where the foam meets the glass, and I silicone all that because if the foam wants to pull away, silicone sticks extremely well to glass. It bonds with glass, so it's not going to pull away. Um, so before areas in my background would pull off the glass and create a gap frogs can get back there anything can get back there so i use the sponge mat as plugs so if i have any area that starts coming away i just take that sponge and just shove it in there and it fills that void um, or if i pull a big bromeliad out and it's got all kinds of root structures and pulls a bunch of foam i can use that to kind of fill it and it's black so it doesn't like show like yellow and white or whatever color right. foam you use so and then i can cover that with moss or plants or whatever so i use it for a lot more than just the sponge mat that, you know, for the substrate area. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so easy to do too. I mean, you know, when you do a drainage layer and then a substrate layer where this is acting as both, it's acting as your drainage and your substrate, you literally just cut it to shape, set it in the tank and you can be done. If you don't feel like carp. Yeah, you can be done with it. And I just top it. Um, I've done some where I just topped with a very thin layer of uh, sphagnum moss. Um, I've done some where I've done no sphagnum moss, no live moss, just literally leaf litter on top of it. And uh, eventually it, that those the early leaves, they kind of turn into their own substrate. Kind of, substrate yeah, yeah. It breaks down and yeah. the fresh leaves on top. So that's actually probably the most naturalistic to how it is in the jungle. I mean, you've got wet leaves on the bottom that are kind of the substrate. There's like hardly any nutrients in the substrate in the jungle. And, um, and then you have the fresh leaves on top. So I have ones like that. And then I have the ones that everyone seems to like the most are the ones where I use the, the low growing tropical moss right on top. And then I do leaf litter in certain areas there, but that seems to be the style that most people I get asked about the most people really like the moss and the, yeah, it, you know, they mean, want to know what moss I use. And I, I'm just not allowed to, to say. You're not allowed to say. My, okay. <laughs> my source that he i've asked him and he just said please don't please do not like do not leak i don't want anyone hitting me up for moss like, right, don't man. leak my don't leak the source or don't leak the type of moss 
the source. Oh, okay. The, the, the only type of moss, it's it's definitely it's a tropical moss. Um, he calls it low-growing tropical moss. Okay. And okay. so I use that, and then he also has some uh, Ricardia species of liverwort, which is that's what I it's, use. That's incredible. That's awesome. That's, incredible. that's the best. It's yeah. it's the coolest looking for sure. Yeah. It's uh, once it gets going on a piece of cork bark yeah. or something, it's it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't. That doesn't do well on the ground for me though. It only does well on cork bark, or I don't use cork, but like uh, wood or any like background. Sometimes it can take well in a background, but it seems like it's got to be sort of on the higher on side of the tank. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's it's interesting. I also find sometimes it does better in the shade, and sometimes it does better like right under the light. And then it's okay. it's, it's a very weird one for sure. Yeah. Um, but for the floor, I've had semi success growing it on um, on leaf litter. Oh, okay. Like right, like I physically put the pieces on the leaf litter and then sprayed them down <laughs> every day until like I kind of got something going. But it was Found too much. Started. It was too much work. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah, look great now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's um, that's what the low growing tropical moss is great for is ground cover. It's, yeah, it's green. It doesn't get leggy. It stays short, um, grows fairly quick. And um, yeah, it just it, it does extremely well on the ground. So that's that's primarily what I use for the ground areas. But yeah. that's awesome. Um, so I, I have a few more questions on that. If that on the on the sponge. Sure. So yeah. you did already kind of cover one of them when you said the forest ground has no nutrients because i was gonna ask uh like compared to an abg mix for the plants there's yeah. not much nutrients in there but also yeah. is that why you use more epiphytes and uh low growing mosses to kind of combat that or yeah uh, i mean i you know a lot of people ask me about that like do you notice a difference from the substrate yeah. and the and the sponge mat with your plants and the the short answer is no I don't notice a difference at all. Um, being that most of the stuff, pretty much everything I use, philodendrons, peperomia, they, they're all epiphytes. Like they don't need soil. They'll grow on wood. They'll grow on moss. They'll grow on rocks. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, rocks, it wouldn't be a good place to start the plant out. Uh, it probably would dry up and not, not do well. That That's another tip, actually, I don't talk about much. But um, when I set up an enclosure... And I do the background and it's, I've dried it and rinsed it many times. A lot of people ask about the dry lock. They have like issues with the plants dying. Um, they think it's like a chemical from the dry lock. That, that I don't exactly know the reason, but what I do after I set up a tank, if I'm not in a hurry, like if I'm not setting up a tank that needs to be done yesterday and that's yeah. like, I'm, I'm, you know, if I'm not doing that and I'm just making a new tank and I'm planned it out accordingly, I'll set the tank up. And I'll put it on the misting system with no plants, no substrate, just the tank in there itself. Sometimes I'll, uh, I mean, if I'm not, I'm doing the sponge filter mat. So if I'm not doing substrate um, and I'll have it run on the mist King and on the, like the same timing that my tanks do um, for a good week to two weeks. What that does is it, it rinses the background even further. Um, and it also lets the wood and whatever in the tank kind of get saturated. Yeah. Um, Cause that dry lock, I, I believe it does absorb some water. And so I think what happens when people are having plants die quickly after they set up a, a tank and they do the dry lock background, I think what's what's happening is they set up the tank, they rinse it a few times, so like, all right, I'm done. They put it on the rack. And then right from day one, they plant it. They throw the and then it's absorbing a lot of that water. And I think the plants are just drying out is what's going on there. 
Um, so like with my 300 gallon that I did, I had that set up on the misting system for like two and a half, three weeks um, right. before I even put a plant in it. And it had the water running in the bottom. I had the waterfalls running. So um, I, I didn't lose a single plant from being in contact with dry lock um, when I planted it. So I think that's part of it. And I think it's huge for any, especially people like that want to grow moss. There was like, every yeah. time I, I put moss in a tank, it dries up. It's like, well, did you set it up like that day? You set up the background. Cause if, if that wood is wet and it's absorbed, then when you spray a tank, that, exactly. So, so that's, I think very important, but um, getting back to the question, sorry about that tangent again. Um, but getting back to the question, you know, I've had some plant people, like when I send them a picture and they're like, oh, I see that it's got some chlorosis on that plant. You know, it's starting to yellow there on the leaf. And I'm like, well, yeah, that happens with ABG too. Like plants yeah. don't, like leaves don't live forever. A leaf lives for a few months, sometimes a year. And then that leaf starts to die out as a new one comes up. Like it's like, it's like someone looking at a bromeliad and being like, well, there's got a bunch of dead leaves on the bottom there. And it's like, that's if, that's if you go does. to the jungle, that's what you're going to see in the jungle. Yeah. There's a ton of dead leaves on the bottom and new leaves come out. Like that's how they grow. Um, so I, I've had my 300 gallon has no substrate. I've got uh, Anthurium or Aquianum. I've got or Aquianum, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've got Vecchia. I've got some of the like harder to grow, I guess, house plants. Um, I think everything grows extremely well in vivariums. We kind of have like cheat codes basically for, plants that these people struggle with to, yes. to keep alive outside of tanks. So, um, yes. but every, everything, I mean, it's grown extremely well, new, huge leaves. Nothing looks like like poorly grown, I guess, or poorly growing conditions. Like right. everything grows extremely well under them. Um, and I think part of that reason is I don't really have too many plants growing in that sponge filter mat. You know, I, I do like, I'll do like a little tiny, if I have a, say it's a huge plant and there's just a little tiny root ball on the end i do just i wrap it in a little bit of sphagnum moss and i um i pin it to the background so the only thing it takes it takes a while for those roots to make their way down and start but i mean i have uh there's a tank over here that's uh, it's all sponge filter no substrate leaf litter on top um and there's a uh, burl marks a philodendron burl marks and there's like the whole front of the tank. You just see crazy roots running throughout the, the sponge filter mat now. So, so it, it penetrates and it just, so it's doing its thing. I mean, like, yeah, I just, I don't notice a difference. Um, there may, but I'm also not a, I'm not a plant specialist. Like I don't know. Right. I'm not a botanist. I don't know. Like, you know, it's like, I see something that like starts to yellow and it dies. I'm like, yeah, it's got a new leaf coming up. It'll be fine. Yeah. The leaf comes up and it's beautiful. Like I don't worry about that stuff um, where I'm sure, sure some people do. And some people may give their tanks tons of nutrients and growing aids and stuff and fertilizers where they get like, this one's got a better color. It's like, I don't yeah. know, dude. It's my, mine grows and it's green. That's, get that more pink on the, on the leaves. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's something I don't go for. I'm, I, I try and I stay away from color pretty much um, unless it's like that. Um, it's like kind of a darker, almost like purplish color. Sometimes I'm, I have like the Solanum, Solanum Ulanum. And yes. it's kind of got that same color. And I like that in a, in a right. vivarium, but it's darker. I don't like like bright reds and pinks and oranges. Like I try and yellows and stay away from that. 
yeah i'm I'm not much of a plant person myself if whatever my philosophy is more uh it's it's alive it's working um i i don't yeah i i agree yep. with you 100 percent um exactly. but then what about um microfauna uh do springtails breed well in the sponge and like yeah. ice pods as well and all of that yeah so you don't find any problems don't find any problems i don't really seed my tanks anymore um you know, I used to seed them back in the day. I'd dump a whole culture of white springtails and dwarf white isopods and dwarf yeah. purple isopods. I'd dump them in the tank. I don't yeah. do it anymore um, because a lot of the time I'm transplanting right. plants from, and they just, like all my tanks have microfauna. There's also these like, these little blue springtails that, or they call them chrome. They're like the real shiny little, I shine a light in there. Like they're in the tank. There's right. isopods I didn't put in there. Like there's all kinds of stuff in there that, I didn't put there. It just it comes just, with leaf. I don't know if it's coming on the leaf litter, coming on plants, coming on the moss that I get. I don't know, but um, yeah, I, I do notice that not having the substrate or ABG it seems like the the population of the of the microfauna is staying in that leaf litter layer, which is great. Which is for yeah. for froglets and little frogs that need those. Um, they're not buried buried under the substrate um and it like the, the substrate or the uh, sponge filter mat you know being it's so porous it's kind of like i mean it's just there's tons of surface area for them to to breed and congregate and do whatever on if they want to drop down to the water level it's great the worst thing about the false bottoms with like the egg crate is that when yeah. springtails fall under they sit there and they just float it, unless you flood the tank they're, they're not, not going to get, get back, back up so it's just like it. So that's why I stopped using that years ago, and I started using like grow stones, which is similar to the Lika or like yeah. or lava rock. Um, so that's why I started using that. But then when I started using this, I'm like, it's the same thing, and it's even lighter, it's cheaper, and I don't need substrate. I can just so it's like that's why there's so many there's so many pros for it for me. Yeah. I can't really find the cons. Um, so you don't I, even I really, put anything under it. It's just all the way to the bottom. It's just sponge. How, I don't know if this yep. makes a difference, but how many inches do you use? I'm not a size guy. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> if it's, uh, so most of my tanks have like a four inch substrate or a four inch substrate dam. Okay. Uh, some of them have a six inch, but I, uh, I probably do in the front, the very most, like the front or edge, like what you can see, I try to keep that at like two inches. Um, okay. As long as that, the two so inches ab is above my drainage hole. Um, and then I kind of slope it up towards the back just because okay. that creates more depth. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's whatever you want it to be in the 300 gallon. I did do the false bottom, um, like a riser yeah. because there was, there's eight inches of water in the bottom. And I didn't want, if that was all sponge filter mat, I felt that it's creating a lot of possible potential dead spots that could, you know, harbor Get cyanobacteria. Or so yeah. I have had cyanobacteria issues with tanks um but i feel like with vivariums i've had cyanobacteria issues with any water feature not just a sponge filter mat any right. any feature i've ever done in a, in a vivarium has had some sort of cyanobacteria right yep. i've never that... had it not show up so that's a problem people like have asked like do you have cyanobacteria issues with it? it's like yeah i have but i have it with every i've never had a, a vivarium yeah, yeah. It's everything i do in a vivarium seems to get that cyanobacteria so do you have a method of bottling it um 
I did try the ChemiClean. I did the ChemiClean a couple times. Um, seemed to work. In the 300 gallon, I had a little bit of it in this one section, like farthest from the outflow um, yeah. from the sump. And so I did add a power head to see if like the flow, adding more flow would help, which it did, but I still had a little bit. Um, what I did is I changed my light cycle um, to exactly 12 hours. Made it shorter, yeah. My vivariums, like my breeder tanks, sometimes I'll, I don't get to come out here um till like eight nine o'clock at night so, so you don't even want yeah so i was running i was running 10 a.m to 1 10 a.m to 1 a.m was my light cycle out here but now i think i have my these ones are set that's still yeah yeah these ones are still 10 a.m to 1 a.m but the big 300 gallon is 11 it's 11 a.m to 11 p.m okay and doing that seem to help significantly um like i have very very little cyanobacteria where it's just like literally like a one or two square inches on the bottom on the and i have no fish in there or anything so i don't really have the back i don't i mean i have the sump and everything running but i don't have you know the bio load from the fishes or anything like that but i'm gonna be adding fish soon um and so we'll see how that goes but okay. yeah the tanks, the vivariums that I had, cyanobacteria, and I mean, it would be like the entire water section was covered in it, like the entire water section. So um, I think a big part of that is that light cycle, though. Really shallow water, really bright lights running for 15 hours a day. I, I don't. Th I think it's kind of impossible to not get it under those conditions. Okay. Yep. First of all, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I also – come in here really late tonight and keep my lights on longer than they should be. So just a, a quick test, a quick reroute. Do you think that affects the frogs and their breeding habits? No, I think anything? they, no, I think they adapt just like anything else. If someone has a light cycle, they set, turn their lights on at 6 a.m. and they're out at 6 p.m., the frogs will understand. Um, yeah. You know, and like, some people are really strict about like feeding times. Like they feed their frogs every, you know, Mondays, Wednesdays, mm -hmm. Fridays, sometimes Sunday. And it's like, like I feed at 3 PM. It's like, that's fine. I mean, I, everything I do is at random. The only thing that's like on a set schedule are my lights and my misting. Yeah. Everything else. I just completely do it random. Yeah. Sometimes I feed my, I feed my adults six days in a row. Um, you know, in the jungle, they eat every day. Yeah. They eat all day, every day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea to give your your frogs flies all day, every day. But, um, you know, if I if I open a if I feed a tank Monday, if I feed some tinctorious Monday, and I go back Tuesday and I open the door, and there's some flies moving around. I'm not going to feed them. Yeah. But if I open the door and there's not a fly in sight, it's like, yeah, I'll give you guys some food. I give them, you know, a hundred flies. Um, I also think it's kind of important to not for if you're trying to keep like a big, a good, healthy weight, like kind of bulky frogs. Um, if you if you feed frequently, but less amounts. So if you feed yes. once a day and you feed 400 flies, they could possibly get stressed out by the amount of flies. They're most likely not going to eat all 400 at once. So if you feed 100 at four different times in that day, they'll probably eat all 400 of those oh, flies. Okay. And they will, you will notice their weight um, significantly change. Um, 
So like, I tell people that when they have skinny frogs, they're like, is my frog looking too skinny? I I'm like, try feeding 10 flies 10 times a day. You know, if you, if you can do that, um, you have 12 hours to kill and you want to come back every hour and, yeah. you know, just check. You can do that. And if they're eating those small amounts, you'll notice their weight will increase significantly. And, you know, the other benefit of, of feeding it small amounts is the supplements don't just wear out. Like if, if you're feeding 400 frogs, by the time they get to the 400th frog, that's a completely like it's, there's no supplements yeah. on that fruit fly. Like, it's, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I absolutely yep. agree with that. I also I feed my frogs daily, actually, uh, but yep. like very, very little amounts of fruit flies, like um, yep. enough for that. Like when I come the next day, as you said, there's nothing in the tank and they can get more food. Um, exactly. Yeah. No, that's 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 awesome. Very very interesting, um, um, like little tidbit, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So I've already had you for a very long time. I I, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do <laughs> oh, want to ask you a okay. couple of questions about the three hundred gallon, if that's okay yeah, with you. Absolutely. Uh, sweet. So first of all, the Atlopus um, are an incredible species. I've been. Um, I'm. I'm. You got yours from Nick Stacy, right? Yeah. Yes, I've been yep. watching. I was watching the whole breeding process and him, him trying to get them to spawn, and it, uh, it's crazy, <laughs> incredible. Are you going yeah. to attempt to do the same thing? No. No. <laughs> no. It, so, it did seem like a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, I got them because um, the three hundred is a display tank, so I just wanted a display animal that would do well um, in a paludarium setting. So dart frogs, it's not the best setup for them. Um, now. I did have some bastamentos in there at one point, but I pulled okay. them because they escaped. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was that was one thing I learned with a four foot tall tank. Uh, when you slide that door open, there's that much more room for them to jump out. Yeah. Um, so that that was an issue. So I took those out. Um, they took themselves out. <laughs> yeah. Two, two of them got out, and I was like, "All right, that's enough. I'm moving yeah. the other ones." Um, so, um, yeah, I got the Atalopus because they are. They're, they're bold, they walk, they have the cool little call, and then they do the little hand-waving that they do because they like to hang around noisy streams and waterfalls. So normally, then their call isn't very loud. It's like a real faint whistle. Um, and, you know, that's why they wave because most females or other males wouldn't hear that, so they do the wave to show, like, the Have you seen it yet? Call. Uh, I have. I have yeah, seen it. Okay. It's super cool to, cool to see. Um I'm a little surprised by them because mine are predominantly arboreal. They, they stay up in the, the big leaves a lot. They're not down on the ground too often. Um, I see a couple females down there once in a while feeding, but most of the time they're all up in the leaves, um, pretty much where the glass frogs spend their time. But it's just the different time yeah. switch. The glass the frogs are up at day. night. And yeah. yeah, these guys are up during the day. Um, I have 10, 10 Adelopus, Palios. I have... Um, I think it's a 6.4. Um, and then I have the five Valori, um, which I've had breeding. They bred and I had viable clutch from them, which is cool. And the 300 um, gallon. Mm -hmm. Did yeah, you just find the tadpoles in the, in the water section? No, I found the eggs. They found it. Okay. So, um, yeah, I didn't pull the eggs. And I think they, the tadpoles that got in the water area, there's a couple little gaps from my riser. And I think they got behind, so I couldn't really monitor them. But okay. they may still be in there, maybe alive. Glass frogs yeah. take forever. Because Nick Stacy sent me, uh, he sent me a clutch of glass frogs, and I he sent me that back in like 
April. I just had my first two come out of the water like two weeks ago. So it, it took, it takes a long time and I raised them in a, in a tub, not with a sponge filter. I did a canister filter on them. Okay. Um, but yeah, they take a long time. So the tadpoles could still be alive in there eating whatever algaes and diatoms are in the tank. Um, but I, I really, <laughs> I really wouldn't know. They're, they're so small when they, when they morph out or when they, when they break out of the egg. But, um, yeah, Adelopus are a really cool species. Um, and what's great about them for a paludarium setting is that, um, especially with glass frogs too, is that they both eat the same, like they both can eat high DI fruit flies and right. yeah. for their, their entire life, it's all they need. So um, originally I was going to do red-eyed tree frogs in the tank and then like Pamilio uh, blue jeans because they share habitat in the wild. So I figured I could do it here. But the issue I ran into was crickets because um, right. red-eyes will take some big crickets. And then if the, you know, the blue jeans, if they're sleeping at night, their crickets have a tendency or they you know, potential to chew on them, which nobody wants that. So yeah, sure. that was something I just didn't, I didn't feel like battling. I knew I could have did it if I would have did like a, a, a floating feeder mm -hmm. um, where the red eyes would just basically eat. That's the only place they'd eat the crickets, but like in me, the water. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the crickets yes. really couldn't get out and they couldn't, climb the background or do whatever. I, that's pretty much the only way I could have did it. And to me, nothing about that seems just natural. You're battling, yeah, kind of, you're battling crickets yeah. in, the, in the water as well, like that crickets in the Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, you know, maybe I should look for a different species. Um, and then I was just going to do only Cruzio Hilo Craspidopus. going to do a big group of them. And then I decided that tree frogs in a display tank are kind of the worst worst kind of the worst candidate because you're only going to see them at night so i still want to do a tank for for crafties at some point um but it won't be a big giant display it'll just be a cool little display um yeah. maybe i'll do it for my son's room or something but, something easier um, to clean too because they go all over the glass all over <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah that that was those were the issues i ran into and then um i was talking to nick one day and just like you know do you think the alios would do good in here he's like that's absolutely a perfect setup for them. It's like, sweet, sweet, done, let's do it. Send me some. So, yeah. yeah, so we worked that deal out. And, um, yeah, I asked him, you know, he's like, are you planning on breeding? And I was like, no, just just for display purposes. He's like, well, I mean, I, they have they have gone in in Plexus multiple times. Um, Since you I found, found them? Yes. Yeah. Wow, okay. I found multiple males, multiple females in in Plexus. Never found eggs, although I also haven't really looked super well for eggs. Um, Nick said that I think the Arlington Zoo, I think they breed them or somewhere in Texas. Um, maybe it's Fort Wayne. I can't, I can't remember, but somewhere in, in some zoo, some establishment, they, they breed their Adelopus in big groups in a big tank and a big paludarium. He's like, your setup, the fact that you have the sump, you have really good water quality. You right. absolutely could, they could survive in there. So that's pretty much where I'm going with it. If they breed and they lay eggs in here. I'll hope for the best, but I'm not, yeah, just, yeah it's, yeah. it's not something that's not like a goal of mine. Um, I guess the goal was to have something breed in there and the glass frogs already did. So that was there cool. You go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now the, the, the group of tadpoles that the group of, uh, glass frog tadpoles that Nick sent you, are they also going into the 300? Yeah. I, I already put two, the two that morphed out, I already put them in. Okay. There's still like five or six more. Um, so yeah, if they make it, yeah, I'll throw them in too. 
awesome. yeah, that was the I put a picture up on Instagram a couple of weeks ago of a, a little one on the glass, and you can see its tail it was a you know, it looked like it was like glowing green. It's pretty cool. I think I did see that one. Yes, I think yeah. I did see that. Yeah, that, yeah, that's one of Nick's, Nick's babies that got added, and I, and I saw them. Um, so yeah, I was like two or three weeks ago when I took that picture. It was right around New Year's, I remember. And then I just saw one last week in there. It absorbed the tail. It's eating. So sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Which, I think the same species of the, uh, tree frog as the ones you yeah, have. They're, they're, yeah. yeah, they're both Valoria. Yep. Perfect. Okay. That's awesome. Or Valoria, however you want to say it. Awesome. And then is there any, I know you already said fish. First of all, do you have, and do you know what kind of fish you're planning to put in there? Yeah. So I'm doing a trade with a, a, a really big famous YouTuber um, okay. with in the, I guess, vivarium hobby world. He's, massive um and he lives an hour from me so we are trading some frogs for some fish and uh he gave me like a group of fish to choose from and i don't know anything about fish like i've never kept fish i know nothing but i just literally like he was like these fish will all do well with these groups so uh i chose celestial pearl danios i think i know who um, this is okay <laughs> go ahead i uh and then i i chose I forget which Cory cat, um, but there's uh, some Cory cats and then some Amano shrimp. So he said they'll do absolutely well. And so he went and got fish for me and he is acclimating them. And uh, yeah, he's going to, I don't know, whenever he drives over here, he's going to drop the fish off. And he said he wants to pick my brain about vivariums and planting. And uh, then he's going to do his tank. And then I'm going to, I'm going to take the frogs to him and see his setup. So uh, that should be pretty cool. I'm not gonna guess on air, but I'll. I'll Wait, I'm gonna, hold on I'll, one second. Guess afterwards. <laughs> something, something happened. My Siri popped up, and I couldn't hear what you said. What, what was that last part you said? Oh, sorry. I said I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try to guess on air, but I might. I might try to throw a few guesses oh. at you afterwards because I'm very curious. And also, there's somebody sure. that in that space that I'm just gonna say I've been waiting for her for that person to get dark frogs for a very long time. So my fingers are crossed that. You're probably right. You're probably right. I think everyone's been, everyone's been waiting for him to get them. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's awesome. I uh, I hope you guys get to film the. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you will. But I hope you get to film yeah. the, the actual like. I know he will. Each other's rooms and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing all that. Then that that would be awesome. Do you? Yeah, uh, is are you picking the the frogs or is he picking the frogs? He picked the frogs. He picked the frogs. Okay. Okay. Awesome. He picked the frogs. Yep. And I just happen to have some some really a really nice line of the frogs he wants. So, um, okay. they're cla they're classic. Yes, classic okay. as your yeah, 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 yeah. I got yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I I know you're working with uh, specific different dots, um, dot sizes yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yep. Yep. Very yeah, cool. cool. Okay. Well, well, then on that that good note, because that's I'm very excited now that now that we know there's. Uh, <laughs> some cool stuff in the works um yeah, absolutely yeah first of all thank you very very much for for all that incredible information um i, I know absolutely. i'm gonna have to listen to it again when i'm editing but i'm probably gonna have to hear it uh once it out a couple of times again because there was there was actually a lot of a good info about uh well everything but specifically ufaga i've been trying to learn a lot about them for for a long time yeah. so once again thank you very much absolutely um, man yeah anytime you have any questions that if i d didn't answer them in the ufaga just feel free to reach out to me, man. Like that's, you know, whenever people come over to my house, they come to the garage and they're like, thanks so much for like taking the time out. I'm like, 
you kidding me, man? Like this is this is an excuse for me to come out here and I can't get yelled at. So, so it's yeah. like, <laughs> this I want to be out here. I want to be spending time in here. You um, be so talking like talking frogs. frogs yeah, I'll talk frogs literally all day. So that's um, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And then uh, can you let everybody know where they can find you? I'm sure most people already do, but um, just in general. Yeah. yeah. Um, YouTube. Um, Troy's Tropical Garage or Troy Goldberg's Tropical Garage. Um, I was just featured in one of Adam's videos, which was like a, a huge surprise. To I me. saw I that you were the first or the second name to go up, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. I did see that. I yeah. was so not expecting it. I was like, yeah. what? what? Sweet. Um, so, uh, and then on Instagram, Ufraga Histrionica. That's it. Facebook, Troy Goldberg, hit me up. So, yeah, those are my, yes. those are my connects. And I'll have all those links, uh, as always, in the show below. Um, uh, my info, Daffy's Reptiles, on all social medias as well. Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast. Thank you all so much for watching, and we will see you next time.